0: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 245, The Prebender is Plot. Before I start, let me briefly remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a smorgasbord, a smorgasbord I tell you, of independent podcasters. To find out more, go to agorapodcastnetwork.com. And so, Ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys, we come to the last act of the reign of Henry VIII, or shall I say, we're kind of rounding the corner into the home straight. And a particularly fascinating final act it is at that. The last five years of Henry's reign are maybe not the most well-known or discussed, that is, I must admit, a bold statement with absolutely nothing to back it up, but we no longer have those towering figures that get everybody going, the likes of Wolsey and Boleyn thomas cromwell and yet it is fascinating you think there have been factional struggles up to now well let me tell you you ain't seen nothing yet the absence of one dominant figure at court was like chucking fish entrails into a barrel of piranhas the water boils it turns red the stench of fear and pain fills the gilded corridors of court and brooding over all is the vicious and suspicious figure of the Henry of Cornelius Metzis's portrait. Bloated, balding, unhealthy, narrow-eyed, grotesque. And around the decaying body of the lion, the children play, closer and closer daring, until the old body stirs a roar, the blur of claws and teeth and a flash of red, until the dying lion falls back, exhausted once more, leaving the corpse of the offending subject behind him. I exaggerate for effect, of course, and we mustn't get ahead of ourselves. Henry doesn't become moribund until after December 1546, and we are only in 1543. But he's most certainly at an advanced level of bloat. And now, he was to be seen more and more rarely in court amongst his people, increasingly keeping to his private chambers. He found it difficult to move because of his illness and his weight, and when he did, he was to be seen leaning heavily on his gold-tipped cane. And the affair of Catherine Howard had seemed to affect him much more than his other wives. He felt it as a vicious personal betrayal. The final acceptance may be that his youth was permanently gone. And yet, despite all these well-trodden images, the old guy was not done yet. Nor by any means there was life in the old carcass. In fact... After Catherine's execution, he famously roused himself again in February 1543 to start entertaining once more. So much so, that Chapuis began to speculate that maybe, just maybe, the old dog would marry yet again. Surely you jest, monsieur, surely you jest. These years are Henry's most politically involved. He resolved that there would be no more Wolses, no more Cromwells. Now, he'd do his own dirty work he'd make the decisions around here. After all, he had less to do with himself, given that he could rarely get off his backside to go hunting anymore, and jousting was a distant dream. He'd flatten the poor old horses if he did. The images are of him reading away in his private rooms. There's a much-quoted example of an annotation against verse 25 of Psalm 37 that was made in his own hand. The psalm reads, I have been young and am now old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Henry's annotation reads, A painful saying. Poor Henry was feeling his age, and he was feeling his mortality, but he was getting involved with the decision-making of his council. And besides, he'd tried the likes of Norfolk and Suffolk before, and they'd proved themselves very much second division. In fact, it was as early as 1541 when Chapuis reported Henry storming at his council that the execution of Cromwell had been a disaster. Under the pretext of some slight offences which he had committed, they had brought several accusations against him, on the strength of which he had put to death the most faithful servant he had ever had. Which has good evidence, as you are ever likely to get, of Henry's talent for shifting the blame. But the point is, that now he resolved to rule with the council only. And so appears, for the first time, formally at least, the Privy Council. Now, we have talked about the King's Council, and we may even have used the words Privy Council, I know not, and if I do I apologise, but now, for the very first time, we can use it officially. And of course, it will be a feature of our Tudor histories, we will grow to love it. You might be wondering why I am saying official, given that the King's Council has been going on for ages, well, now there is an official secretariat of about 19 clerks. There is an official minute book of all the meetings of the Privy Council. Although this move is often presented as Cromwell's and does indeed owe something to his reforming direction, the change, the creation of a formal Privy Council, comes after his fall in August 1540, and so it is Henry's initiative. But while to some degree it obviously seems like a bureaucratic sort of change, actually, it is also a symbol, or maybe facilitation is a better word, of the deep division that will dominate the final years of Henry's reign, between a group composed of broadly aristocratic religious conservatives on the one hand, and a group composed of broadly evangelical bureaucrats on the other. On Cromwell's fall, like the kids let out from school on the first day of the summer holidays, the aristocratic faction under Norfolk and Gardiner that had laid Cromwell low ran screaming and shouting and leapt into the swimming pool that was the Privy Council in a chaos of shrieks and water bombs. The Privy Council of Henry's later years is nothing like the professional council of serious, sad-faced men of Elizabethan days, This is finally, at last, the culmination of all Norfolk and Suffolk and Gardener's dreams of the way that the world should be, rule by the ecclesiastical and secular aristocratic elite. Kick out the Oikes, brothers and sisters. To see how this was achieved, we have to go back a bit to the 1539 Act of Precedence. This was part of Henry and Cromwell's great strategy. That strategy to bring the nobility of England into a service, dependent relationship with the crown based at court. So, all the great offices of state were amalgamated and defined into eleven great offices. Of these, six were the old royal household offices so, constable, marshal, that sort of thing. They could now only be held by a peer. The other five, were the mere bureaucratic offices, so Chancellor, Lord Privy Seal. But actually, almost all of these were always held by nobles too, and so the result was that the secretary to the king was often the only office that was actually held by a commoner. All of these 11 offices of state were members of the new Privy Council, and their domination by the nobility therefore meant that the Privy Council itself was dominated by the nobility, by the peerage. 58% of The Privy Council were barons in 1540. 61% in 1551 were barons. The Act also meant that rank and precedence was now defined by holding conciliar office, rather than the old rules about the age of creation and whether you were a Marquis or an Earl or a Baron and so on and so forth. Now, you might think this is trivial in our modern egalitarian view where we can tell ourselves furiously that rank and hierarchy are no longer important and we can all wear holy jumpers. But back then, precedence was worth fighting a duel for and certainly worth taking folks to the marshal's court. So the impact of these changes was to bring about that focus of most of the peerage coming into court where they could earn that precedence. The example we had a few episodes ago of Baron Ogle, who rejected the call of court and concentrates on his doing his job on the northern border against the Scot is very rare now. Also, a full twenty-five per cent of the peerage are now represented on the Privy Council. So yippee! Finally at last. Phew, thank the Lord. The Aristos are back in control, driving the bus of state as they should. Now everything's going to be fine again. But hang on. Hang on just a minute. While the Privy Council might be dominated by religiously conservative aristocrats, there was another source of power. The source of all power was, of course, still the king. And there was a much more subtle, much more informal, but every bit as effective source of power around him. And this was the court, the household, or more specifically the Privy Chamber. This is the domain of the likes of Cromwell and his appointees. The gentry who served the king in his private chambers and on a personal day-to-day basis. His chief gentleman of the privy chamber, Antony Denny. His physicians like William Butts and Dr Wendy. These are the men who know the right time to gently suggest to the king that such and such and such a course of action might be a good idea or intervene to defend one of their own from execution or demotion. And these men are not only gentry, they are almost all evangelical. The story of the last few years of Henry's reign is that story of a struggle. A struggle between religious conservative and evangelical, where the conservatives are broadly aristocratic and dominate council, and where evangelicals tend to dominate the court and privy chamber and seek to thwart the conservative effort to roll back the progress of the Reformation. And at this point I must pause and issue a caveat. This is a lovely model, delightful in its simplicity and clarity, and will open up a world to us of fun and of games. But life is never that simple. There were commoners on the Privy Council nonetheless. There were still peers who passionately embraced the evangelical cause. We can count Bishop Gardner in the Conservative group and Denny in the Evangelical, but note that Denny would beg Henry to appoint Gardiner as one of the executors of his last will. This may be the second to last time that I issue this caveat. I will not try to be puritanical about it. The attitude of Henry is also critical. Of course, it's not entirely clear how much in control of events Henry is. There are broadly two views. The extremists, if I may call them that. The old school of Henry the hero, on the one hand, and at the other end of the scale, the exponents of Henry the blood-dripping tyrant and murderer of small fluffy puppies, though actually that's hardly extremist anymore, that is essentially orthodoxy these days, these folks would probably prefer the view of Henry the puppet master playing off faction against faction to demonstrate and exercise his absolute power and tyranny. The alternative view is of the indecisive Henry, constantly wavering between different courses of action and in his indecision encouraging faction to flourish after all as I think I said a few eons ago, there'd be little point in factions if they had no chance of influencing the king's decision. You might as well stay at home and go and eat worms. I suppose you could still believe either theory and still consider Henry a tyrant, though, as we must discuss at some point, if all these folks at court are executed because of their own political infighting amongst themselves, it's scarcely possible to lay all the moral responsibility at Henry's door. Anyway, we'll come to that. I plan a big debate, the answer to which is probably deeply predictable. Anyway, the point is that by 1543, the battle was well and truly joined, and the Conservative faction were in the joyful ascendant. They'd seen the end of Queen Anne Boleyn, and that had given them hope. They'd seen the Act of Six Articles, yeah, which finally stopped the gradual forward progress of the evil, puppy-strangling Evangelicals and they brought down Thomas Cromwell, and in the wake of his fall, they'd colonised the Privy Council. In 1541, they'd acted against two high-profile court evangelicals and Cromwell disciples, Thomas Wyatt and Ralph Sadler, and managed to get them both accused of treason, and Sadler would have been a scalp of real consequence. Though, as we've seen, the pair were subsequently released, unstrangled. But now, in 1542 and three, the king was chasing an imperial alliance against France and the king would be very keen to show his complete orthodoxy, to smooth the conscience and path of the deeply orthodox Charles V. At the heart of the struggle was Stephen Gardiner, Bishop of Winchester, much more so than Norfolk, really, because Gardiner was a man of genuine talent, subtlety and conviction and unlike Norfolk, he had the ability to coordinate a concerted attack on the evangelicals. The traditional historiography of Gardiner, bred of course in the crucible of the Protestant narrative that was John Fox, was that of wily Winchester, Machiavellian scheming. Many attempts have been made to criticise and revise such a crude characterization, and have generally ended up concluded that, as so often, John Fox actually had a point. And there's no reason why that should detract from Gardiner's reputation. No doubt Gardiner was as interested in power as the next councillor, but there's equally little doubt of his conviction of just how important his victory was to the souls of the kingdom's subjects. One figure of consequence seemed left to stand in his way, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. As far as the evangelical cause was concerned, now the value of Cranmer's decision to stay in the face of the Act of Six articles was confirmed ten times over. Without that, the Conservatives would have had a clear field. Not just that but Cranmer continued to work hard to restart the evangelical cause, though stripped off his supporters in the church hierarchy of Bishops Latimer and Shaxton. So in the church convocation of 1543, for example, Cranmer was still working hard to stuff the lower house with his own evangelical chumps so that he could push through the evangelical changes to his liturgy. And so, of course, Gardiner's next target was to bring down Cranmer. As Cranmer laboured away with the convocation of the church in April 1543, little did he know that for two years all sorts of hatchings and plottings had been going on in his own backyard, and that these plots were ready to be hatched. No point in a plot you can't hatch. Might be good to keep a plot in the hutch before you hatch, but hatch you must. And the plot in the hutch that was hatched is often known as the prebender's plot, though it's a plot suspiciously free of prebends, actually, but it's definitely a plot. I cover it in more depth here than normally because it shows to me the depth of religious division throughout the country, and because Cranmer is important, and because it's a real cliffhanger, because it's fun. It occurs to me, though, that not all of you will know what a prebend is. You might be searching for similar words like, I don't know, proboscis or predestination or prehensile, who knows. A prebend is a sort of office holder in the English church who draws a stipend and often in cathedrals, you'll find the prebendal stalls where they all sat. They might have a proboscis, though that would be odd. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualise your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Just to make sure we're all in the same place then. As Archbishop of Canterbury, Cranmer was like an onion, in that there were multiple layers to his job. He was the boss of the Diocese of Canterbury, just like any other bishop, which is broadly Kent in the south-east of England, as well as primate of all England. Plus, he was a member of the Privy Council and all that jazz. And in his own diocese, he faced a constant resistance to the implementation of the evangelical reforms from both his own ecclesiastical structure and from parts of the secular community as well. By 1541, Cranmer had built a pretty loyal evangelical secretariat around him for his own diocese, very many of them drawn from his alma mater, the Petri dish of evangelical reform in England, Cambridge University. One of these men you have met before in the story of a boat, the bishop's book, and a bear, the King's secretary, Ralph Morris. Morris would be crucial to all of this following plotting, because he was also well connected in Westminster, not to the Privy Council, but in the King's Privy Chamber, with Anthony Denny and the King's physician William Butts. So having the support of his secretariat was all very well for Cranmer, but it didn't mean that the rank and file in Kent had all been converted. Throughout Kent, there remained a network of a very different order of conservative cleric. Brought together by a shared resentment of the series of defeats visited on them over the last few years by the evangelicals. Most of them were from the other premier university of England, Loughborough. Did I say Loughborough? I meant, of course, Oxford University, so the third best university in the country. Oxford was very different, a bastion of conservative and traditional theology. Interestingly, Gardiner himself was a Cambridge man who grew up to much prefer Oxford and employed his clerics from Oxford rather than from his home university, no doubt appalled by the evangelical drift there. And there were other resentments in Kent as well. Remember Elizabeth Barton, the maid of Kent? Her conviction and execution was still deeply resented by those who had believed in her. And the more cynical, who had used her to try and stop the progress of the Reformation in 1536... Along with their conservative beliefs, their resentments, and the golden memory of Cranmer's predecessor, Archbishop Wareham, there was a group of both clerical and secular gentry just ready to be used and mobilised in the conservative cause if the right man came along to direct those resentments. Some of these folks had actually already tried to cause Cranmer trouble in defence of their firmly held views. One such man was somebody called Robert Searles, who in 1541 had actually already brought charges of heresy against Cranmer to the Privy Council, only to be firmly rebuffed. In 1541, Searles had enlisted another local cleric in Kent, one Dr John Willoughby, to start an underground resistance, and together they started to gather whatever evidence they could, work they carried on in secret through 1542 and into 1543. Willoughby and Searles expanded their network as they went, forming alliances with Justices of the Peace, who were influential secular gentry with seats at Parliament, as well as with local authority. Men like Sir John Baker, Sir Christopher Hales, Sir Thomas Moyle. All these names you can forget. It's just to add reality to the vision of people fervently and angrily beavering, beavering away in the background. And it's interesting, isn't it? It gives you an idea about the atmosphere of anger and distrust. You really needed to be careful about what you said to whom in those days, because somebody might easily denounce you for heresy. It was a world sown with anti-personnel minds, and you could tread on one at any moment and blow yourself to smithereens. And the eager seeker after accusations like these was the conservative, aristocratic Privy Council. Still, men like Searles and Willoughby needed a focus, a catalyst. This duly turned up in the rather unattractive form of one Dr John London. He's a very ambiguous figure, is our Dr John London, a persecutor of evangelicals in 1528, who then nonetheless worked for Cromwell as a commissioner in the dissolution of the monasteries, described by a 19th century Catholic historian as one of the vilest men of all this vile time. An Oxford man as well, and part of Gardiner's orbit. Then... In early 1540 he was a canon at Windsor at the Chapel of St George and there as the Conservative cause became ascendant and again started encouraging heresy accusations he ran down three evangelicals who would be burned for heresy as a result of his work. And through such work London was on the tail of an evangelical cleric called Richard Turner. Turner it was that was selected as the first victim Turner was in the sights of London's crossbow. For the Conservatives, help was now desperately needed. Because for Gardner and the Conservative bishops, Cranmer's Convocation of 1543 was not going well. Progress in liturgical changes was being made. The Conservatives were under terrible pressure. And then, in March 1543, there was a recess for Holy Week, time for the Conservatives to breathe, to gather their forces, to try and think of an answer. And fortunately for them, Turner gave them the excuse they wanted and they needed. Turner chose this very time for a particularly fiery evangelical sermon. London, Searles and Willoughby had exactly the trigger they needed to launch their attack and accusations against Turner were launched to the Privy Council. The Privy Council was delighted to pull together Turner with other suspected evangelical heretics such as the Dean of Exeter and the men accused at Windsor by London. It all worked spectacularly well and the Conservative conspirators were delighted with their success and their work. The King himself was reported to be astonished and wondered, angry both with the doers and bearers of the Evangelicals. Gardiner and his faithful disciples were by now working together. On the 17th of March, London, Willoughby and Sales were all spotted outside the privy council room door, as London prepared to go in and give evidence and meanwhile Gardiner was there, carefully supporting the accusations in council, adding his own names and accused. He'd clearly discussed his aims pretty clearly and pretty openly, since Willoughby was reported to say excitedly that the Bishop of Winchester would give £6,000 to pluck down the Archbishop of Canterbury. Nor was it just Gardiner egging them on and coordinating them with other accusations, Sir Anthony Brown, a Knight of the Garter, immensely rich and influential member of the council, was also in touch with them. Further evidence of the essentially conservative nature of the council. But John London and Gardiner were still not happy. It was not enough to attack the clergy in Cranmer's diocese. In the end, Cranmer would probably ride out the accusations and even protect those accused. They needed dirt on Cranmer himself. And so on Good Friday, 1543, Willoughby rode hard back to Canterbury to meet the conservative clergy there. And hey, presto! came riding back with sheafs of accusations against Cranmer personally going back to 1541. Game on. By the 22nd of April, all these had been laid not just before council, but also before the king. On Easter day, a prebendary giving the sermon at Canterbury Cathedral, celebrated with an excited attack on wrong-thinking evangelicals, calling the faithful to arms with shrieks of Heretics! Faggots! Fire! Paggins! Well, not the Baggins bit. A nastier, meaner little story is of the evangelical cleric's funeral that happened at this same time. As his body lay in the grave, one of the cathedral clerics grabbed the censer and threw burning coals on his body in his coffin, contemptuously signalling he'd been a heretic and should have been burned. Now, remember Catherine Howard and the secret investigation we talked about last episode? Now the same thing was set up for Cranmer, led by Sir John Baker and Stephen Gardiner, And Cranmer, of course, was blissfully unaware such a thing was going on. But while he might not have been aware of the assassin's knife at his back, he was painfully aware of growing conservative strength in other ways. Helped by this flurry of accusations against evangelicals, the wheels fell off Cranmer's convocation with a mighty crash, tyres bouncing all over the place, mowing the evangelicals down. The first was the review of the Bishop's Book, which had been going on at Convocation. The Bishop's Book had been a significant step forward for the evangelical cause, now it was being revised, and it was a major defeat for Cranmer's arguments. On the 5th of May 1543, the revised Bishop's Book, now called the King's Book, since this one had the explicit approval of the King, was published as the official doctrine of the Church in England. It was more conservative in almost every respect than the Bishop's Book, with the exception being the very dismissive treatment of purgatory. And then on the 8th of May came a further hammer blow against the central achievement of the evangelicals, the Bible in English. The Act for the Advancement of True Religion was described as being designed for the abolition of erroneous books, and censorship of the Bible in English was back in town. Tyndale's Bible was banned, no scripture was to be included in any plays or poems, Quite remarkably, only people of a certain status could now read the Bible in English. There was to be no artificers, apprentices, journeymen, serving men of the degree of yeoman or under, husbandmen nor labourers. Obviously, no women either, although that was amended to allow women of noble and gentle status to read to themselves alone and not to others. Gardiner was delighted and wrote that the king had by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, settled all matters of religion. Furious evangelicals thundered that those who went about to take away the reading of the Bible went about to pluck Christ's words and the Holy Ghost from the people. Cranmer had no choice but to accept it all, and it's characteristic of his view of his duty and of the authority of the king that he did so, and from May to August evangelicals continued to be examined and imprisoned and the investigation against Cranmer proceeded. In May, Norfolk was brought into the know, and the strength of the forces arrayed against Cranmer grew still further. In July, to the surprise of many, Henry married his sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr, of whom more at some future episode. And yet, it wasn't Cranmer as Archbishop of Canterbury who officiated at the wedding. It was Gardner. Cranmer wasn't even there. The Windsor Evangelicals were finally burned, Richard Turner, was incarcerated in prison. Cranmer, still blissfully unaware of the investigation, stood, unknowing, under the sword of Damocles. It may well have been the 10th of September, 1543, that one of Cranmer's servants came rushing in to see Ralph Morris and told him that the king was indulged in one of his favourite pastimes, an evening's boat trip with music playing on the Thames. And he seemed to be heading to Lambeth, the place, of course, of the Archbishop's palace, Morris rushed to tell his boss that he must prepare and hurriedly Cranmer rushed down to meet his king and was invited to join the king on his river journey. Now, Henry had brought the accusations with him. The axe was about to fall. As they set off, Henry turned to Cranmer and he presented him with a sheaf of papers and declared, Ah, chaplain, I have news for you. I know who is the greatest heretic in Kent. Cranmer read the accusations with horror and then he fell to his knees and did his thing, which was the naive, honest thing. He admitted that, yes, he did oppose the spirit of the six articles, but declared he'd done nothing physical against them, and that he wanted to avoid any further disunity, and so he asked for a trial to uncover the real truth. Henry suggested that, yes, an investigation and trial was indeed a good idea, and he had the man to lead it. He would choose... Thomas Cranmer. Now, whereas you and I would have laughed, bitten the king's hand off and taken the job immediately, Cranmer argued the big ninny. No, no, he said, it should be someone impartial. Henry's head in this was, of course, much wiser. Thomas Cranmer, it would be that would lead his own investigation. Well, this was a golden opportunity for Cranmer, of course, Not only did it look as though he was out of jail, but now he had a platform to find out exactly who had said what, and upon them he could visit the vengeance of the wronged, which is something most certainly his opponents would have done. Cranmer, on the other hand, did no such thing, and a few investigations limped on with no great speed or fury. The conspirators, meanwhile, were utterly terrified about what was going to happen to them, and Gardiner had to reassure Willoughby that the Archbishop could not kill them, although at the same time Gardner was sneering at their fears, and in one case at their tears. Amateurs! I can imagine him snarling to himself. It was Cranmer's secretary Morris who compensated for his master's lack of the killer instinct. He called in his privy chamber contacts, Anthony Denny and William Butts, to speak to the king. And as a result, the much more ruthless Thomas Lee appeared in Kent with the King's personal ring to lead the investigation, and the situation was transformed. All over Kent, conspirators' doors crashed inward as a bunch of burly men invited themselves in and seized their papers. And duly incriminating evidence was found specifically from Stephen Gardiner's secretary, Germaine Gardiner one of the conspirators, one John Thatcher, rode through the night to warn Gardiner of what was going on. Only to find court gone from Westminster, and so he chased it all the way through London for two days before catching up with the good bishop. When he did, Gardiner just snarled at him again. Get you home again, what need you come so far for such a matter? Slightly crestfallen, the amateur left the professional schemer and went home to panic on his own. It is indeed very cool of Gardiner. Maybe he knew his man, knew that while he, Gardiner would drive a plot to kill his opponents, Cranmer would not, unless he had Cromwell at hand to do the deed for him. And, indeed, such proved to be the case. Despite Thomas Lee's evidence of Gardiner's involvement, Cranmer did not pursue him. If Cromwell had been there, Gardiner would have been the most toasted of toast, and no amount of butter and jam would have revived him, if that's the appropriate metaphor. I rather suspect it is not. You might have thought Gardiner would have been thankful, grateful even. Wiped his brow. Not a bit of it. Whatever Gardiner was, he was no shrinking violet in for a penny and all that. And anyway, Gardiner had another card to play. He had the council on his side. And by November, council went to the king for his permission to summon Cranmer to answer charges of heresy before the council itself. And to their delight... Henry agreed, and he specifically agreed that as they saw cause, so to commit him to the tower. No doubt, as he went to sleep that night, the Reverend Bishop of Winchester lulled himself to sleep with visions of Cranmer's defeat in council. Maybe it would be just like Cromwell all over again, insignia and signs of office pulled from him as he was cast into the dankest of tower dungeons. Yum, yum, delicious! Meanwhile, however, Henry had sent Denny... To go and get Cranmer and bring him to him, when he arrived, Henry laid into him for his utter daftness in thinking that he would get a fair hearing from Gardiner and the council. Do you not think that if they have you once in prison, three or four false knaves will be procured to witness against you and to condemn you, which else now being at your liberty, dare not once open their lips or appear before your face? Cranmer, you see, was a cleric, not a politician, Henry sent him away with a flea in his ear and a gift. The following day, council duly assembled, buzz of excitement and anticipation of what they were going to do, possibly a little dribbling while no one was looking. Cranmer arrived at the allotted time, but the doors were not opened for him. The Archbishop of Canterbury, primate of all England, kicked his heels outside the door like a boy at Loughborough Grammar School in the 70s, waiting for the application of the headmaster's cane. That's not me, by the way. Eventually, after three quarters of an hour left waiting, the council deigned to let him in, and curtly, pitilessly, the council growled at Cranmer that he was under arrest and waited for the archbishop to collapse. Instead, Cranmer stepped forward, and he presented them with the gift that the king had given to him the day before. It was not the flea from his ear, it was in fact the king's own personal ring. How lovely! I imagine there was a horrified silence while the council assassins looked at this thing and tried to come to grips with the relevance of said ring. It was Lord Russell who found his tongue first. Did I not tell you, my lords? I have no idea if Cranmer managed to keep the smugness out of his voice as he told them that, oh, the king was waiting to see them. I can tell you now, if he did, that were an achievement well beyond my acting talents. Knowing Cranmer, it's just possible that he actually felt worried for them next door they rushed to find said schoolmaster, waiting, swishing his metaphorical cane. The best bit of the whole story was Norfolk, who managed the most delightfully feeble schoolboy excuse. We meant no manner hurt unto my Lord Canterbury in that we requested to have him endurance. That we only did because he might, after his trial, be set at liberty to his more glory. Please, Norfolk, stop. It's embarrassing. Nevermore after, no man durst spurn Cranmer during the King Henry's life. These words were written decades later by John Fox, no doubt with glee and satisfaction every bit as deep as Cranmer's. The fallout from all of this was most ungardinarian or indeed Cromwellian. There were casualties, but not much in the scale of things. John London was thrown into jail for perjury, and there he would later die in the fleet prison. Willoughby and Searles seemed to have survived, for which generosity of spirit Cranmer would be poorly repaid by Searles in Queen Mary's reign. In fact, Cranmer was really quite absurdly magnanimous about the whole event. He actually acted as patron to one of the conspirators later, and commissioned him to write a play, and supported the request of another for the king's favour. Cranmer's survival, a lamb amongst wolves, is surely one argument in defence of Henry's character. Here was one person he appears to have genuinely loved and stood by throughout his reign. Richard Turner's story is a nice example of how the Privy Chamber worked to defend its own radicals. After Turner had been incarcerated, he was released pending trial and his return to Kent turned into a triumphal progress, with people coming out to stand along the road and cheer him on. This was unwise. Henry was told, Henry was cross, and he ordered Turner whipped. Once more, Ralph Morris pulled the strings, and Denny and Butts rolled into action. Butts it was this time, who waited for the right moment, and then, spying a time when the king was in trimming and washing, he pleasantly and merrily beginneth to insinuate unto the king the effect of the matter. Buts had chosen his moment well, and as a result. Whereas before he had commanded the said turner to be whipped out of the country, he now commanded him to be retained as a faithful subject. Result! As ever, access to the king was everything. The same was true of Gardiner, for his story was not over yet. Gardiner had blotted his copy-book, and in February payment was made, and was paid by a gardener. But the gardener who paid the ferryman was not Stephen, but his nephew and secretary, Germain, who was executed for having communicated with the hated Reginald Pole. Stephen was reportedly devastated, as well he might be. John Bale, one of the many evangelicals now hiding in exile from Gardiner's persecution, speculated that that excellent young man, Germain Gardiner, would have avoided his fate if he had been brought up in Cranmer's, Rather than Bishop Gardiner's household. The gardener of the Stephen variety came close to paying the ultimate price himself, facing examination by counsel, but he also managed to find a way to the king, prostrated himself, and so won his pardon. It was a close call, and there would be others ahead. Excellence, there we go. A study in scarlet, day to day life in the court of King Henry. Can I just take this opportunity to say some thank yous? To all you members out there, thank you again. And also to all of you who continue to make donations, which is really very lovely of you. And to all of you who do reviews on iTunes and so on. I read every single one and I can tell you that encouragement makes a massive difference. The world is a little brighter with each one I read. So thanks. Next week then, let's turn our attention to the other great affairs of 1543 and 1544. We have a new queen to introduce to the world and an impressive one at that. And we have some wars to fight. Until then, good luck, everyone, and have a great week.